welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves, shining a light on the powers of monopoly and sculpting a way forward to rebalance those natural opportunities. So are you one of those facing the twin pressures of poor job opportunities and high housing costs? Today's guest is Jason Murphy from ThomasTheThinkEngine.com. That's ThomasTheThinkEngine.com. And he's crunched the numbers to show a jaw-dropping 93% change in the relationship between small business startups and property investment. And guess who wins? Jason wrote an article on the weekend that went totally viral, 2,400 shares, uh, how falling land prices are going to make us rich. So settle in for a good conversation with Jason Murphy on the issues that matter here on 3CR. We're joined this week on The Renegade Economist by Jason Murphy, a former Australian Treasury economist. He's worked at the Ministry of Finance for the Republic of Nauru and also was a journalist for the Australian Financial Review. Now, over the weekend, Jason wrote a excellent piece called how falling house prices could end up making us rich and it's been shared over 2,400 times on Facebook and a lot of people are talking about it. So, Jason, great to have you on the show. What fires you up about the world of economics and why are you passionate about running your blog, thomasthethinkengine.com? I guess what inspires me to talk about economics is, is how much it matters. One of my one of my bugbears actually is when people go, "Oh, economics! I couldn't care about economics. I just I just don't care enough about money." And I I always have to say to them, "Economics is not about money. You know, it's it's about it's about so much more than that. It's about it's about work. It's about how we spend our lives. You know, food, water, who gets who gets what, about land and everything. Uh, so I, I guess that's what inspires me to. To, to write about economics is that I just think it's it's so important and, and something that perhaps not everyone feels comfortable grasping. I know after I'd been asked what I studied for about the 2000th time, I started telling people I was uh, studying modern warfare and that's a... <laughs> They'd say, what? And I'd say, yes, this invisible hand that sneaks into your wallet and uh, takes your money when you're not looking. i say, huh? Yeah, 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 this invisible hand, it directs you into all these little rabbit warrens that you'd have no idea about. But uh, that's uh, what I study and drag it on for a few more minutes and then eventually tell them it was economics and they'd be like, oh, my God, that sounds so much more interesting than what uh, we're led to believe. That's really good. I might have to steal that trick. Can I steal it? Why not, Jason? Why not? Sure. Yes. So in your blog, you've written a very interesting post called Why People Think Tax Reform is a Knife and Why That's a Problem for Australia. It's all over the press at the moment. We talk about raising the GST. There's also in the background discussions on land value capture. Why do you think tax reform is not a knife? As you mentioned in the intro there, I worked at Treasury and Treasury has this analysis that you know, ranks all the different taxes in Australia on in terms of how efficient they are, where efficiency is defined as, you know, the extent to which they can help make the economy operate more smoothly and grow more quickly. And, and I, I subscribe to that theory. I think some taxes are better for the economy 
than others. But you just you just don't hear that in the debate very much. And so when I was saying tax reform is a is a knife, or people think tax reform is a knife, my argument is that uh, when people talk about tax reform, they mainly talk about carving up the pie. You know, everyone everyone knows that the GST is going to be harder on 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 the less well off, and that is really common. As, as far as the topic of discussion goes in the comment section. And, uh, Carl, I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time in those comment sections and uh, it's, sometimes, it's sometimes a bit ugly in there, but you can, you can really learn a lot. And what I learned is that people are, are really focused on that distribution angle when they talk about tax reform. They certainly are, aren't they? And uh, when you look at the the economic dialogue that's happening, you've got to say that some of the reforms that have been pushed of recent really are being led by the left and the the right wing desire to uh, to to drop uh, company taxes uh, as uh, the first and foremost measure is now being openly ridiculed by people who have taught themselves a lot by engaging in these comments pages on various uh, webs. But I think the the argument against a lot of these tax tax changes could be uh, strengthened really by engaging on that topic of efficiency. Uh, you know, whether you're for or against the GST hike, I think if you if you or or a company tax change, if you only focus on the distributional angle, you're going to be missing half the debate. And uh, the the people that that are making policy are probably not going to take your point of view into account to the same extent if they feel that you don't understand that that efficiency angle. So I think it's it's really important for people on every side of the debate to educate themselves about the way taxes function as an input to economic growth rather than just something that happens after after a transaction to divide it up. And certainly one of the the pushes that's been around for a long time is to have instead of the the gross domestic product to have a genuine progress indicator or the uh, human development index as the UN pushes it. But I've always argued that happens after the case. We want something that directs decision-making before uh, money is invested and that's where the tax game really plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Every... every business that makes a makes a decision is looking at the tax consequences of it and um, often I think they're finding ways that they can they can make decisions that avoid any tax ending up in the hands of the of the of the government in that public purse where it could be spent spent wisely and I think probably a lot of tax reform needs to focus on on making tax a tax a lot harder to avoid for for some of those decision makers. And the big news this week is that uh, Chevron has paid just $280 in income taxes in America uh, whilst claiming uh, billions and billions of dollars in in corporate profits. And so uh, that's a classic example. And here in Australia, people often say that uh, our petroleum resource rent tax is uh, our most efficient revenue raiser. Uh, But uh, really, when you hear stories like that coming through, you wonder how uh, the big boys do avoid paying a fair share of tax, even on resource rents-based charges. Yeah, I think actually you said they paid $280 in tax. I think it was only $248 in tax uh, in Australia last, uh, last year, I think it was. But the ATO does have them in court and could potentially get some money, 
some money out of them. Um, from what I'm reading is they could pursue them for $285 million, or if they take a different argument, they could try and get $450 million out of them per year. But, um, yeah, I mean, as you say, you don't want to be chasing this money after the fact in court. You want to set up the rules in advance so that this, uh, this money doesn't leak out. And my understanding of that is it really does need to be an international process, unfortunately. It's very difficult for Australia to set its rules independently of these other nations and, and prevent that tax avoidance by those multinationals. So we need, to, uh, we need to gang up with the other nations of the world, which could be tricky. Yes, all these international agreements tend to take decades upon decades, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't see that they're really meant to work, uh, you know, even if it is just a bilateral agreement. Uh, so many loopholes get uh, inserted into the equation over time. So it will be interesting to see how Chevron tries to sidestep this uh, increased uh, economic literacy amongst the voting uh, electorate uh, in terms of tax evasion. But even if they were paying uh, their full 30% in uh, corporate taxes, uh, what you're saying is that that perhaps is not the best way to grow the, the GDP cake. The, the company tax. I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of other taxes that we could have instead, I guess, that, that could grow the economy a little bit more quickly. And I know you're a fan of, of land tax rather than company tax. Yes, certainly are. And one of the articles I saw recently on 9msn.com.au you're writing for uh, highlighted the, the perhaps the number one graph for the year uh, uh, talking about how uh, you know company tax has a marginal excess burden of around about 30%. Might have been a bit higher than that. And uh, GST was around about 25%, but then land taxes had no excess burden. They actually had a negative excess burden, which means uh, they're positive for the economy to the tune of 10%. So uh, that really is where we should be concentrating more fully uh, these discussions on tax reform. Yeah, I mean, the great the great thing about land tax, of course, is that it's it's blindingly obvious when you've got land, unlike when you've got profits. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard to uh, pretend 10 acres is only two, unlike uh, 10 million in profits, which you can probably pretty easily disguise as, uh, as 2 million. You know, any, anyone with a tape measure can tell how much land you have. So uh, I, I, it really is, it is a simple and progressive tax, isn't it, which is, is just so rare in the current environment to find a policy option that doesn't have that trade-off between effectiveness and fairness. And that's that, to me, is the massive charm of land tax is that it's, it is both fair because the, the wealthier you are, the more you pay, and it's efficient according to this Treasury analysis. So if we, if we move to land taxes, the economy should tick along a bit better, unemployment should fall, wages should go up. It really just seems like a win-win to me. And that's what we like here on The Renegade Economist, isn't it? A win-win. We're talking to Jason Murphy, the author of uh, the viral sensation, How Falling Land Prices Will Make Us Rich. Let's get back to the interview. Yes, well, the problem I see is that even with... uh, 
people locked out of the housing market, uh, first homeowners, those suffering from uh, $60,000 help fees. Uh, uh, there's a huge economic incentive to understand how this land tax system works, but uh, uh, it seems that people have... Well, until recently, people have felt like, look, this is never, ever going to happen, so why even bother looking at it? But thanks to the online community, uh, you know, Twitter spheres and so forth, uh, good blogs like yours, more and more people are doing the study to recognise that uh, this is an old story, but a good one. And when you consider that uh, the Australian Property Monitor's found that uh, Melbourne-based land prices went up $95,000 last year. Uh, the the system and national accounts found uh, that nationally residential land prices went up $525 billion last year. So there's extraordinary amounts of money being made in this sphere. And uh, as property developers can be overheard in pubs saying these days, it doesn't matter which side of the tracks you're on as long as you're near uh, public infrastructure, as long as you're near a new train line, you're going to enjoy some sort of windfall gain. So, Jason Murphy, independent journalist, uh, please uh, give me your insights on how we can build up people's understanding of the role of land and uh, the the need for a more efficient tax base, uh, such as land taxes. I fear that the way that we will build that understanding is is slowly. My, my study of uh, the history of tax reform is that it just doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. You need an idea to sort of float around for 10 to 20 years, really in the forefront of people's thinking before it, before it ever happens. So I'm not going to hold my breath for a, uh, a land tax in, in 2016 or, or 2017 or, or maybe, you know, not even in, in 2020. But um, you know, I think when an idea is a good idea, it does it doesn't go away, and that's that's one thing that land tax has. It is a good idea. It's a uh, a fair tax and an efficient tax, and so it's going to haunt the landscape for long enough until one day the 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 day the day will come. And I think in that in that interim period, what's got to happen is that people have just got to keep talking about it. And uh, there was a great report by the Grattan Institute recently that spoke about it talked about all the, the billions of dollars that could be raised quite effectively by a land tax. I think there just needs to be a lot of that over time until people grow comfortable with the idea and, and stop fearing it so much. And then one day we'll have a, a politician with, you know, a, uh, a big lead in the polls, perhaps in 10 years' time, and they'll think to themselves, geez, what am I going to use this big lead in the polls for? And, and some advisor can say to them well if i had that much political capital i'd spend it on a land tax and they'll uh, they'll be able to make it make it happen that's that's my imagination of how that how the process works yeah, well, that's what I was hoping about a decade ago. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at this incredible debt overhead societies drowning under, basically, and uh, fearing that now that mortgages have been pushed out to 40 years here in Australia, that uh, unless we do something about this, we're going to have multi-generational mortgages uh, alongside students finishing with fifty to $100,000 in debt. 
and uh, you know they still won't learn about uh, a, the role of land or the land tax system in their economic studies. Uh, how did you go, Jason, during your studies? Did you ever hear about the role of economic rents and uh, unearned incomes and how land taxes can address these uh, natural advantages owners of prime locations uh, can enjoy? I can't recall learning that in, in class, Carl, but I have to say I did spend some of those classes at the pub. Uh, but I've, I have, I've read a lot since, so hopefully I've made up for some, some of those lessons I missed. Mm, yeah, well, I, I mean, I remember them spending one class on it and saying, look, uh, you know, this is an old story, it's outdated, and you might bump into someone talking about it, but whatever you do, don't listen to them, it's just uh, not not relevant anymore, and here we are just eight years after the global financial crisis, and uh, Auckland has suffered something like a, a 25% increase in property prices in the last year, Sydney's been uh, at similar sort of levels and Melbourne not too far behind, let alone so many other global cities around the world. San Francisco is just well out of control. London, similar. Uh, The list goes on and on. So it seems like that this incredible mobility of capital that uh, has been accentuated with, uh, you know, the use of online platforms uh, is something that's that's going to uh, accelerate the need to, uh, to get a grip around these sort of issues. Those free flows of capital are, I think, pretty important for understanding the um, the rise in house prices. A lot of it has to do with – because, I mean, if you look at where that rise in house prices is, it isn't actually so much in, in Adelaide or or Newcastle. The, it's really focused on Melbourne and Sydney, and I think that sends, sends you a pretty big clue that it's the international cities that are, that are really seeing the massive inflation in house prices, and that's because that's where people – from overseas are looking to invest. Mm, let's talk about that though because we're seeing at present uh, a huge amount of capital being pumped around the world where you know the fiscal spigot is open in the US, China and Europe. So says one of my favorite uh, economic commentators Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the Daily Telegraph uh, or the telegraph.co.uk and he's saying look uh, the pump primers are underway there is the central banks are uh, uh, printing uh, uh, handing out the money left right and center and because of that uh, you know, this talk of there being a global recession um, in the next few months is probably not correct. I think that article is quite persuasive. I mean, uh, I, I'm actually kind of optimistic about uh, the prospects for the Australian economy in the next uh, in the next couple of years, so long as the federal government uh, doesn't get too obsessed with returning to surplus in a hurry. But uh, I think that there are some there are some hopeful signs that they. Uh, that they might invest a little bit in infrastructure and and um, and not worry too much about the bottom line. I mean, just just as an aside, I think you know one year is a ridiculous time frame for a federal government to try and decide whether its budget should be balanced. It really needs to think about a much longer period of time to balance the books over. Uh, a one year a one year period is like it's like worrying about whether your team is ahead or behind in five minutes of football. It's 
been a, a long-term trend that's been occurring and, and some say that this corporate tax evasion uh, that uh, the Chevrons of the world are engaging in is primarily to blame for these, these budget deficits. So, uh, are you of that persuasion or do you think uh, there's something grander in play? That, that revenue leakage from multinationals doesn't help, but I think really where our revenue problem comes from is, is those um, tax cuts that were handed out under the Howard government. To my mind, I was working in Treasury when a lot of those happened and every year Treasury would project the amount of revenue that was going to arrive and uh, every year they underestimated it and the government had all this spare money so they just handed it back to the taxpayers. Not. I don't think it was a direct influence, but that uh, U.S. Republican idea of, of starving the beast might have might have influenced them at the margin. You know, there, there's this idea that uh, rather than the government banking that money, it's it's better to give that money back to the people. And if the in the future the gov- government ends up uh, a bit short of funds, then that helps the size of government shrink. And I, I think that worked. I mean, if you look at our, our tax take now, it's it's a very small part of GDP. Yeah, well, it's certainly below the OECD averages, so we don't have a high tax take, so the size of government isn't really out of control. But you wouldn't know that if you uh, listened to some of the commentary. There was someone uh, in today's financial review uh, peddling that same tired old line that uh, it was the size of government and we do need corporate tax cuts to um, help deliver uh, the sort of uh, growth dividend we need. But we've got to get on to your, your big article of the last few days, how falling land prices could end up making us rich. Now, you crunched some numbers from the RBA and came out with uh, the sort of graph of being tried to um, conceptualise, but uh, run us through what you found. Yeah, so it's a graph that shows uh, how much money Australians are putting into investment housing compared to how much they're putting into business and uh, it stretches back to 1990 and back in 1990 we were putting 20 bucks into business for every dollar we put into investment housing. Uh, by the end of the graph, by 2015, we're putting $1.40 into business for every dollar that we put into investment housing. So that graph looks like a pretty steep downhill, which has been a really compelling story and as you say, that story that I wrote was, was quite popular on, online. And it really shows, I guess, that we're being less entrepreneurial and more and more interested in landlording as as a way to uh, as a way to get ahead. And you, you see that even on TV with people, uh, you know, reno- renovating for entertainment on Channel Seven every every Tuesday night. We're discussing with Jason Murphy, Jason Murphy from ThomasTheThinkEngine.com here on Three CRs Renegade Economists. Yes, it's just everywhere, isn't it? Uh, people all want to jump in on the property ladder and make this easy money uh, that is uh, just barely even taxed at all. And uh, that's where we need to um, get more people understanding the role of land taxes. So why do you think then uh, there's been that prioritisation for investor housing over small business? I mean, isn't it everyone's dream to, to grow up and, and run their own business? Uh, no, I don't think it is anymore in Australia. I mean, uh, or if, if it ever was, 
But the data I looked at shows that fewer small businesses are starting up in Australia now than they were 10 years ago. I was, I was kind of surprised. I went back through the data I was looking at each year, and each year I went back in time. There were more small businesses opening up. So we're, we're actually less entrepreneurial than we have been for a decade. And I, I reckon that's to do with the fact that you can just make more money from owning a house than you can from opening a, a fish and chip shop or a, you know, a, a, a plumbing business or a design consultancy or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be. I think um, if you're in my generation, your parents, your parents are constantly telling you, oh, you know, get a property, come on, buy one, do it, get a big loan. And, uh, and, and that's a lesson that I think is really ingrained in Australia that the, the way to make money is to, uh, is to get that foothold on the property ladder. And, I mean, there's, there's no evidence so far, Carl, that they're wrong. That should be pointed out. Mm, that's for sure. Uh, it's it's just uh, the costs that flow through to the rest of the economy. And when you look at the casualization in the workforce now, uh, the lack of job opportunities in small to medium-sized business must be off-putting to many people who consider working in a multinational company where you don't have much influence over some of the major decisions uh, as, as a real letdown. So uh, what do you see playing out in the world of casualization? Because uh, so many part-timers out there are locked out of the housing world and, and in a way that suits the investor class who uh, have less competition. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. One thing I saw recently which was really interesting was um, a website for high-priced consultants that was operating on that casual basis. So it was like a, an Uber for, for KPMG or McKinsey, if you like, where a, a company that wanted to hire a, an expensive business consultant could go on there and, and get one for an hour or a day and, uh, and save all the overheads that would go with hiring a consultant through one of those big consulting firms. And what that said to me is that that casualization of the workforce is not limited to um, people that, you know, might be working in, in low-pay jobs or even low-status jobs. That casualization is now sneaking up to the, to the high-pay, high-status jobs. And look, I, I don't want to say that, that casualization is bad. You know, I'm a freelance journalist and uh, my job is highly contingent and highly casual and uh, fairly precarious. And I really love it and, and I'm aware of other people that also work here on this basis and, and they enjoy it too. But, uh, you know, I also understand that uh, I'm in a fairly privileged position of being, being, you know, adequately paid and not everyone is in that position. Jason, so uh, to wrap things up then, uh, where do you think the government needs to go to build up the, the, the electorate's knowledge of of tax policy so some of these difficult questions that Malcolm Turnbull is trying to push through at the moment can be addressed uh, beyond the the seven second soundbite yeah that's that is a really tough question how do you teach people something that they're probably not that interested in learning about I mean the government could do all those things that a that a creative agency would tell them, you know, make cute YouTube videos and have a Facebook site and run competitions. And I still think you probably wouldn't get too many people engaged in in learning about the nature of tax reform. 
it's it's a genuinely tricky problem to get people to understand more about how how tax is relevant to the uh, the health of our economy and. Geez, if I had the answer to that question, I'd, I'd probably be consulting to government and making it a, a lot of money because I reckon the government would, would love to know how to teach people that and it's a, it's a genuinely tough problem. Well, quick, let's register the website ripyourselfoff.com. <laughs> ripyourselfoff.com, what is that? <laughs> well, that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're, we're penalising ourselves by ignoring this, this story we talk about week in, week out here on The Renegade Economist. And there we go, the interview with Jason Murphy from thomasthethinkengine.com. Yes, wouldn't that be good? Please, cyber squatters, go and register me, the website, rippingyourselfoff.com, where we're voluntarily adding about 30% to the price of everything we buy. We're adding about $300,000 to our mortgage debt and amongst many other things as we've heard today, there's less jobs, more casualization in the workforce, more property investment and good old lower economic growth. So uh, it's a loss loss for the community, for those who aren't part of the first come first served agenda. So uh, step on up, read earthsharing.org.au and prosper.org.au. Speak new Dumienski, who was on a couple of weeks uh, with uh, microstates and macro problems. He's gone viral this week. He's had another big article talking about these principles we discuss here on The Renegade. So now's the time to become a member or hit the comments boards. Thanks very much for listening here on 3CR. Are your energy bills too high? Are you having trouble paying them or understanding what they mean? Tried to save money by changing your energy provider but found it all too complex? You can find help at the Victorian government's new Energy Info Hub. The hub is a website that contains simple, useful information in several languages to make sure you make the best decisions possible about your energy use. Targeted information for ethnically diverse...